The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Ken, I know you've been watching some documentaries recently on Netflix. What's caught your attention? So there's one called Civil, directed by Nadia Hallgren, that follows the civil rights attorney Ben Crump for a year of his law practice. And it's really fascinating to see what happens behind the scenes. There's obviously been a huge amount of attention placed on the criminal cases in the George Floyd murder and in other high profile cases. But often we don't really know what's happening with the civil litigation. And Ben Crump has been there not only for the George Floyd case, but he's represented the families of Breonna Taylor and Trayvon Martin and many other families. And it's just a fascinating look at the relationship between the legal team and the families and how they try to hold these municipalities accountable for these police killings. And you can find Civil now on Netflix. Hi, Top Docs fans. I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to this special podcast that I'm calling Fact or Fiction. In this podcast, I'll be taking a look at the Stars Limited series Gaslit about Martha Mitchell and Watergate and talking to a Watergate expert to see how the series measures up to the facts. So where did the idea for this podcast come from? Well, recently on Top Docs, I interviewed the two directors of the Netflix documentary The Martha Mitchell Effect, and at the time I was preparing for that interview, I was also watching the Stars miniseries Gaslit, starring Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. Gaslit covers roughly the same events as the documentary. So in my own mind, as I was watching both of these programs, I was thinking, I wonder how faithful Gaslit is to the events of Watergate, and what are some of the artistic liberties that the creators have taken? After I finished recording my interview with the two directors, we were chatting, and they mentioned someone named Jim Robinault, who they had spoken to in the course of their research. They suggested I give him a call, and the end result is my interview with Jim that you're about to hear. So who is Jim Robinault? Jim is a Cleveland-based attorney, a writer, and the author of the book, January 1973, Watergate, Roe v. Wade, Vietnam, and the Month That Changed America. He also has partnered with one of the major characters depicted in Gaslit, John Dean, former White House counsel to Richard Nixon and key Watergate figure. The two of them teach a very popular continuing education course for lawyers on the legacy and ethics of Watergate. Most pertinent to this podcast, Jim is someone who knows just about everything there is to know about Watergate. It turned out he had seen Gaslit and graciously agreed to watch it a second time to keep a close eye on the facts and to see how the series matches up to the historical events. Because he's worked with John Dean and knows him quite well, Jim has a few bones to pick with the series about how they depicted Dean. But actually, overall, Jim has a lot of positive things to say about Gaslit. One final thought. As I was preparing for my interview with Jim, I read through this great recap of all the episodes in Gaslit from the writer Alice Burton in Vulture. It's really entertaining, and she does a lot of legwork to uncover a bunch of facts that the series got wrong. But the reason I wanted to bring this up is there was one thing in particular in what Alice Burton wrote that really stood out to me. She wrote, look, I know some people are unhappy with how John Dean is portrayed in this show, but I enjoy his bumbling persona. Does it seem accurate? No, but I definitely do not need accuracy. And that comment left me thinking, can't we have both? Can't we have accuracy and fun in our dramatic limited series? I don't know. You decide for yourself. And now, my conversation with Watergate expert, Jim Robinault. Jim Robinault, welcome to Top Docs. 
Nice to be here, Ken. We just experienced the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. Why and how do you think Watergate is still relevant today? It's interesting. If you read the newspapers, magazines, you will see article after article that compares Watergate to the Trump era. And there are a lot of comparisons. There are a lot of differences, but there are a lot of comparisons. Mainly the comparison is that you've got a president who doesn't respect the law and you have a bunch of people around that president enabling the president. So I think people like to look at all those various aspects and say, this is what happens when the presidency becomes autocratic. It leads to abuses. It's just such a powerful office and it's so unique. So the only thing you can really compare Trump to is Nixon. And that's why it's something that is a fascination to people. And I've written a ton of articles about it. For many people, the definitive account of Watergate is the film, All the President's Men. And having watched that film, perhaps that's their major exposure to the events of Watergate. But that film is now also almost 50 years old. And I'm just curious, we have a new film that just came out, this new multi-part series, Gaslit, starring Julia Roberts. Do you think that this film could perform the same function for a newer generation, which is being the major lens that they use to understand the events of Watergate? You start with the fact that All the President's Men is one of the most important and iconic films of all time. Its status is way up there. And it became so well known, mainly because the journalists in it were the heroes. It's not entirely accurate in the way it portrays what happened in Watergate, but it became just how everybody knew it for many generations. So now you come in with this Gaslit, which it's telling a different story with some of the different characters, but it still, I think, has the ability to influence younger people in particular who know nothing about Watergate, that this will be their touchstone to understand what happened and will be in popular knowledge better known than any of the books that have been written about Watergate. So I think it has the ability to touch people in a way in this generation to really inform them about Watergate that maybe All the President's Men doesn't. It's never going to hold that status of All the President's Men. That's like Wizard of Oz type of status. But I think it will help a number of younger people at least get a feel for Watergate and the, some of the main characters in it. What were you looking for in Gaslit? Originally, I wondered if I was going to watch it because I, I've seen so many portrayals of Watergate that are just completely wrong. So I wasn't really enthusiastic, but I watched it. And once I started watching it, I grew to like it. And I grew to think that the writers, while they missed a lot and got some very fundamental things wrong, did a great job of creating characters and plot and were very artistic and funny. So it, it was something I ended up enjoying. And I've watched it a second time now to get ready for this. And the second time around, I liked it. So I generally liked it, but there are some, as we're going to talk about, some major flaws and some major themes that they missed that I think are important to history that should have been in it. Great. So let's get into some of those scenes. Gaslit is an eight-part series. And in episode one, we meet most of the major characters, including John Dean. And in an early scene, we see Dean speeding through the streets of Washington, D.C. in a gorgeous mustard-colored Porsche. So my question for you, is that real or made up? Yeah. The Porsche is real. The color's wrong, which is odd. I mean, he had a maroon colored Porsche, but he was famous for that car because he was seen at the time among all these older, staid white guys who were in the Nixon administration. He was the young guy and he was kind of the playboy type. 
In fact, he was seen as a Kennedy-esque kind of character. He had longer hair that went over the collar of his shirt. Some of those guys even thought that was almost being a hippie. But, you know, he just was someone who had a cool aspect about him. And that Porsche was a big part of it. And what do you think is the significance of the fact that they changed the color? Why do you think they did that? You know, I bet you there's somebody who thought that mustard color would be emblematic of something. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but to me, there's no reason to change that color. Or it could be just as simple as that they couldn't find a maroon one and they found this one and it was this color. It probably is a little more flashy, I suppose, than the maroon one, which is a little more subdued and they have him screaming through the streets. So I'm sure all of that went into it. All right. The first time we meet John Dean, he's shown with a prostitute. Did this ever happen? No, <laughs> he never visited prostitutes. He was someone in power and someone who was very much sought after. So that was not something that he would have done, nor did he have to do in order to live in that kind of free sex time. I don't know if you remember this, but Henry Kissinger talked about power being an aphrodisiac. And John even writes about that in his book, Blind Ambition, that that's the way it was. You know, you were powerful and frankly, it was quite demeaning to women, but it was this time that that was seen as one of the perks of power. Even if you were a Henry Kissinger, you were still desirable. Power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. So the, there's a core truth in it, in starting it that way, but it is really defamatory in the sense that he never visited prostitutes. That has never been written, that didn't happen. And frankly, that's not something he would have done. Also, it's an excuse for them to gratuitously show a naked woman's body, a character who never appears in the film again. Yeah, and smoking dope too, which I assume that's what they're smoking. And so I think it is really trying to show his character, again, this playboy image, this idea that he's young and he's a Kennedy-esque type figure, but they also introduce the bumbling aspect of it too, introducing his character as the playboy, but kind of ditzy. And that part is also very untrue. John Dean was anything but ditzy. So what we're seeing in these early scenes is how they're going about essentially creating this character of John Dean, some of which is based on truth, but I would say an equal measure of untruth. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And I think it's a disservice, even though you're doing an entertaining series, which I give them a lot of leeway in doing that. And again, I think they did a beautiful job writing. But even though you're doing that, there's a really core, fundamental, deep story of a young guy who gets caught up in his own ambition, figures it out, and stands up against everybody, including the president of the United States, and then puts his life on the line, puts everything on the line to stop what was going on within that presidency. And that courage is lost in this series. And that's too bad because that should be the lesson of John Dean, not that he was a guy who kind of cowered and was stupid and was indecisive. He was none of that stuff. And ultimately, he stood up to Richard Nixon, which took just tremendous courage at the time. I would also add that this series is ostensibly focused on Martha Mitchell, the wife of former Attorney General John Mitchell, and the acts of courage that she took to try to speak her mind about the president's dirty tricks and all the activities that she didn't think should stand. And yet there's not much of a focus on Martha Mitchell and the acts that she took either. Yeah, they clearly were trying to create women as the heroes in this series. They started with Martha, but I think you know, her character is so flawed and has so many difficulties in it that she's not an unscathed hero. And so they have the Mo character, Mo Dean, as the other 
heroine. And they do have her show up as the Sterling character in some ways in contrast to Martha, who has all her troubles, but is also doing her own thing about speaking her mind. So it, it gets very complicated. But as you said, the Dean story overwhelms the Mitchell story in a lot of ways in this series. So one of the things that Gaslit does or tries to do is paint a picture of how the Watergate break-in was put into action. And that process involves this crazy scheme by Gordon Liddy called Project Gemstone, which is depicted in several meetings in Gaslit, some of which happened, some of which didn't, and none of which quite happened the way they show in the series. So can you take us through Project Gemstone and tell us what was real and what was made up and why it matters that they made up some of the things that they did? Yes, Gemstone was a real thing, but Liddy is a complete nut. And while he is a cartoon character in this series, it's pretty accurate. He was a wild guy who had a lot of strange ideas and he comes up with this plan called Gemstone that he presents to John Mitchell, Jeb Magruder, and John Dean at the end of January of 1972. And it has a lot of crazy aspects to it, having hookers go to the Democratic convention and renting a houseboat to capture these people in compromising positions, to kidnapping demonstrators. It's just, it's wild. It's a crazy plan. It's going to cost a million dollars, he tells them. Mitchell says, that's not what we had in mind. Try again. And he leaves. And the next meeting is Mitchell, Magruder, and Liddy. Liddy's presenting when John Dean shows up. This is about a week later in February of 72. And John Dean says, we got to stop this. These sort of things cannot be talked about in the office of the attorney general, because John Mitchell was still the attorney general at that point. And so that ends it. And at that point, John Dean thought it was done, that it was over, that they had done away with all these crazy Liddy schemes. And instead, what happens is he's not told about it, but pressure continues to build to approve something that Liddy wants to do. And Mitchell eventually approves it at the end of March 1972. But John Dean didn't know about the approval and didn't know that they actually went forward with it until the arrests happened. One of the key things about Watergate in general is there's the break-in itself in June 1972, and then there's the cover-up, which happened literally for years after that. And it's important to keep those two things somewhat separate because some people were in on the break-in and knew about it and participated in it. Others only knew and participated in the cover-up. And that's one of the things about John Dean, right? Right. And it's also Richard Nixon. I mean, there's never been proof that he knew in advance about the Watergate break-in. He only gets involved really in the days afterwards when they begin the cover-up. And the cover-up becomes worse than the crime was what they always said. And in this case, it is true. They could have easily have just said, these guys did it. They were our guys. We're going to cooperate and Mitchell's going to resign in disgrace and we'll move on. But Nixon couldn't do it. He's on a tape in which he said, we really should just tell them they did it, but that would really destroy Mitchell. And so this Mitchell story is very important in Watergate because Nixon really believes that Mitchell knows about it. He's very careful not to ask him about it, but he thinks he does know about it and that if they just open up the doors that Mitchell will be destroyed by it. And he just can't see that. He's too good of a friend. He had helped make him president by being campaign manager in 68. So it really is a tragedy that flows out of the John Mitchell story. And one of the things that I got into in my conversation with the two directors of the documentary, The Martha Mitchell Effect, is this kind of love triangle almost between Nixon, John Mitchell, and Martha Mitchell. It's just a fascinating shifting alliances between the three of them. 
In the days following the break-in, John Mitchell goes back to D.C. to deal with those events, leaving Martha in the hotel, essentially under guard because they don't want her communicating to the outside world anything about Watergate. So how accurate are the scenes with Martha Mitchell in Southern California being held captive in this hotel, would you say? I think that the general story is right, and it becomes one of the biggest stories of Martha Mitchell. And she reports it to the press, too. And plays it up that she was kidnapped and tranquilized and all that sort of stuff. As it turns out, one of the guys who worked as her security person was James McCord. McCord is one of the four people who's arrested in the Watergate, you know, during the break-in. And so they know that she's going to recognize McCord. I think they were worried that once she saw McCord, she was going to make the instant connection. Hey, this guy was my bodyguard. He worked for the committee to reelect. Something stinks here that he's the guy doing this. And so I think they try to restrain her in her reaction. And I think that's when things really get out of hand with some of these people who are taking care of her and the doctor who shows up to give her sedatives to try to calm her down. The creator of this series, Robbie Pickering, has made the point that we had all the president's men, but we didn't have the perspective of Watergate from women. So in Gaslit, we're getting Marine Dean's perspective. And of course, we're getting Martha Mitchell's perspective. But one of the things I think ironically, that they left out is that, as you mentioned, when she went back to the East Coast and she did get to a phone, she did tell her story to the media. And so that was splashed all over the newspapers, on TV, on the network news, and people greeted it with a mixture of disbelief, humor, horror, perhaps. But there's no sense from Gaslit in these early episodes that she was able to get her story out there. Yeah, very true. The thing about Martha Mitchell that I think is so important is that she is exemplifying what people in the presidency, like a Nixon presidency, will do to someone who they consider to be their enemy. Nixon and Trump are very much alike in this. They feel like they've never been fully recognized in their circle. Trump feels like he never got the attention and the credit that he should have gotten. Nixon felt that way too. He was a poor kid from California who went to Duke Law School, and he felt like he was an outsider. They both do. And so they hate their enemies. They hate people who they think think they're better than them or different than them. And as a result of all that, when somebody is a threat to them, they need to be destroyed. In Nixon's presidency, that happened with Martha Mitchell. It ended up happening with John Dean. And we've seen it with Trump. Anyone who has done anything to stand up to Trump, they are destroyed. And you have a lot of power to do that. So I think that's a big message from Gaslit that's a contemporary message through Martha Mitchell, that there are ways to destroy people. And the people in power, including her own husband, participate in that destruction. One thing that Gaslit also does is have a lot of sex including a scene in episode four, which takes place during the Republican convention. And it's a party hosted by the businessman, Kenneth Dahlberg. It's an orgy. What can you tell us about this orgy? I, I know I can, you weren't there, Jim, but what can you tell us about the orgy? I can tell you that this is totally made up and it's the worst part of the series, frankly, other than the prostitute scene at the very beginning with John. Ken Dahlberg was a Minnesota businessman who invented Miracle Ear and made money and gave money to the Nixon campaign for another guy who didn't want to be seen as giving money to Nixon. And that check was found. That's also in All the President's Men. 
of all the Watergate figures, he's like the most straightforward. He said, yeah, I did it. Here's the reason. I'll be glad to talk to anybody. He knew nothing about Gemstone. He knew nothing about where the money was going. He was giving money to the campaign. And he was a, a straight up guy. He was a World War II hero, veteran. And for him to be portrayed as someone holding an orgy and the scene with Dean in the hot tub is outrageous, frankly, outrageous. If he were alive, he has passed away. He would have, as a lawyer, I would call a false light lawsuit, portraying him in a false light. It really boggles my mind that they picked him of all people, but that they actually even used his name in this. It really is outrageous and it really didn't need to be done. And certainly Dahlberg's name did not need to be run through the mud. Agreed. And it's interesting when the filmmakers chose to use real names versus when they made up names. And I have to believe that their lawyers had a big part in determining those situations where they used a made up name. So for instance, going back to the Martha Mitchell kidnapping scene, the guy who abused her the most that she called out was a guy named Steve King. In the series, there's nobody named Steve King. The guy who does that to her is named Peter Balin. So I'm just left wondering, why did they make up Steve King's name? But in other scenes, like we have the real Kenneth Dahlberg. I don't yeah, know. I, it's baffling. I, I, yeah, I think if we look up, Steve King is probably still alive. He is. That might be the difference because you cannot sue for defamation or false light for somebody who's dead. And so Dahlberg's dead. Coincidentally, or not so, Steve King was named ambassador to the Czech Republic by none other than President Donald Trump. And I thought I had read that somewhere. Yes. So that explains why lawyers told him to change the name, but didn't bother with Dahlberg, which again, that's maybe legally good advice, but it's really not morally very correct. Let's take a long sequence in episode five, where the president's aide, Bob Haldeman, says to Dean, you and Maureen should go to Camp David and have a good time. We then follow the happy couple at Camp David, where they're playing tennis, drinking champagne, having a grand old time until they flip on the TV and Richard Nixon comes on and basically says, John Dean's going to be doing a report on Watergate, which is news to John Dean. Can you tell us how accurate this Camp David scene is, if there was anything made up, and whether you think there's anything that we should know about that is not accurately portrayed in the film? Yes. The scene is a very important one to focus on. So the writers were right to focus on Camp David because it is a pivot point for John Dean. This is the weekend following his telling the president that there was a cancer growing on his presidency. So that was like a Wednesday, March 21st. He goes in and tells Nixon that, you know, this thing is getting out of hand. We can't stop it. We're being blackmailed by the people who are about to be sentenced by Judge Sirica. And Dean is trying to turn Nixon to stop paying the hush money. He really wants to stop it. and He can't. And at the end of it, Nixon tells him to go up to Camp David and write a report that they can use to give to congressional leaders. And while he's up there, he and Mo go up there. He has a revelation. He has an epiphany. As I've said many times to people, they're on the mountaintop. It's almost biblical. He has a revelation that he can't end this and that he's going to get deeper and deeper into it. He can't write a false report. It's just, it's not going to work. And then he finds out that the LA Times is going to run an article saying that he knew about the break-in before it happened. He didn't. He was involved in the cover-up up to his neck but he wasn't involved in the break-in itself and the ordering of the break-in. So for the first time, he gets a lawyer. And that's when it really changes everything because he's now going to get his own lawyer and go his own way. He's not going to be the scapegoat. 
He's not going to be thrown under the bus. And he begins to cooperate with prosecutors through this lawyer. So that's the big pivot point in Watergate. And it really does change things. And therefore, it's appropriate to focus on that scene up at Camp David. So following the scene at Camp David, we do see John Dean prepping with his lawyer. Maureen Dean is also seen coaching how she thinks Dean should present himself to the American people in his Senate Watergate testimony. What can you tell us about how the filmmakers measured up in terms of their depiction of these scenes between Dean and his lawyer and Maureen Dean? I think that they've got some core truths that they put into it, but they got some of it very wrong. Mo Dean was someone who was very supportive of John during Watergate, and that support was really important. But she was not a close advisor to him about how he should figure this out. She was not the one who told him, as they have her coaching him about what to be and how to be and all that sort of stuff. He figured that out himself and with his lawyer. So they're trying to make her a heroine by making him indecisive, and I'm not sure, and She's the one who kind of grabs him by the collar and says, listen, buddy, here's the way we're going to do it. That's just not right. That's not the way it happened. And it, it is too bad because it really underestimates how dangerous this was for John Dean, how much courage it took for him to do this, and how much he was on the line more than anybody else. So to make him out to be a cowering, indecisive guy is wrong. They should have built them as a team together, which they didn't. Instead, it's Mo taking the reins and pushing him through it. That just didn't happen. And I think that's one of my major problems with the series, that that is too bad for history because he deserves to be recognized for what he did. And she deserves to be recognized for what she did. She also was courageous. I mean, this was really dangerous stuff. They were put in the witness protection program with death threats. So it was high wire stuff, but they worked together as a team. So let's get back to Martha Mitchell. Martha is shown testifying before the Senate committee. And this is the end result of a kind of back and forth between her and her husband in which she's saying she wants to testify, then she's not going to, then ultimately she decides she wants to. But he goes behind her back and supposedly on a golf course, strong arms one of the senators into holding a committee hearing with her, but doing it behind closed doors. So what about this testimony? Did this happen? Yeah, this is one of the great things that they got wrong. That didn't happen. And a lot of people think that she had that happen to her with the committee, and that just didn't happen. There was a civil suit filed by the Democrats Right after the break-in, they knew Nixon's committee to re-elect the president was behind it. They filed a lawsuit right away, right after the break-in. That lawsuit then was delayed until after the election, and then she was deposed in May of 1973. So the timing is she's deposed, and she goes and gives her deposition, and then the Watergate hearings begin. In her deposition, she says that she really doesn't know anything about Watergate. Some people say she was forced to do that by her husband and so forth. I don't think that. I really think she had an instinct that the president was behind it. She knew about Jim McCord working for the committee to reelect. She had right instincts, but I don't think she read documents. I don't think she talked to Mitchell about it and that he really confessed to her. He was very close-lipped with everybody, and I just don't see that happening. And in her deposition under oath, she said she really didn't know enough about Watergate. So they could have called her as a witness had she said something in that deposition that was significant, but there wasn't anything there. And so they didn't call her and she didn't 
not get her day in court. She had her day in that deposition. She had a right to say whatever she wanted at that point. And she essentially said she really didn't know that much about Watergate. She just had her own women's instincts, she said, about what happened. I think that's true. So that didn't happen. It's too bad that they make a lot out of it. The last thing I want to talk about is in episode eight, the final episode. And it's one in which John Dean is thrown into this empty office with Gordon Liddy. And it's a very dramatic scene and it involves a pencil. What can you tell us about this scene and whether it took place or not? I go back and forth on this scene because I think it was so beautifully written to the point where at the very end, they're both got each other's heads in their hands. And Gordon Liddy says, I love you, John. And John awkwardly says, I love you, Gordon. It just is dramatically a beautifully kind of written piece, but it's false. It didn't happen that way. They did run into each other. It was not at the courthouse. It was at the prosecutor's office where Liddy had been brought in. And they were accidentally put in the same room together briefly. And Liddy writes about it in some fantastical way that he had thought in his mind that he could grab a pencil and kill Dean with it right there. Even in his own writing, he didn't say that he said that to John Dean. He just had it in his mind. And then he thought maybe this was a setup. So he forgot that idea. And he thought maybe John Dean wanted to kill him too. That's the way Gordon Liddy wrote about it. John Dean answered it in his book, Blind Ambition, when he did an afterword on it and said, it's pure fantasy. That didn't happen that way. But on the other hand, it was such a fun scene and in some ways got some core values in the speech out about what Liddy felt about Dean. And so it's incorrect, but it did capture some core truth. So that takes us to an overall sense that you have about the series. Do you think that it's more fact or more fiction? And what's your final say on Gaslit as a lens on Watergate? I tend to think that it's more fact than fiction. I think some of the fiction that they did put into it was dangerous and not good for history. Principally, the idea that John Dean was indecisive and cowardly. That does a disservice because younger people need to know He was the youngest guy in the room. He stood up. He took on the president of the United States. And he actually says to him on tape in their last meeting, history will show I was right about all this. And so it is a disservice to history what they got wrong. On the other hand, they have some very good core truths in it about how things progressed, who the characters were, what happened, and all that sort of stuff. So I think more fact than fiction, but the fiction that's in there in the sex scenes, for example, gratuitous sex scenes were unnecessary. What is fiction is too bad because I think it really hurts not just the credibility of the whole thing, but just the message of the story. Well, I want to thank you for helping dispel some of the myths of Gaslit and telling the real story of Watergate. Thank you so much, Jim, for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Okay, Ken, thank you. It's been a pleasure.